0: Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome to the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Moore, and I want to thank you all for joining me today to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. So before I get started today, I just want to briefly apologize for taking so long to get this episode up. I was actually planning on doing it earlier this week, but unfortunately, I came down with a rather ugly sore throat. So I am still dealing with a little bit of that today. But the bigger problem that I had was the fact that whenever I tried to record anything, my program would just crash, maybe two, three minutes in. No idea why, no explanation, it just quit. So I sort of diagnosed the problem as being related to the fact that my computer wasn't powerful enough for whatever reason. I've been using the same computer for a year and nothing bad had happened. So long story short, I got a new recording computer and I spent most of the week setting everything up, getting all my software installed, making sure all my recording hardware was working properly. So good news is I don't seem to be having any more problems. Everything seems to be running smoothly. So hopefully no more delays in the near future. But because of all these things that I had to deal with this week, I didn't actually get a lot of chances to be able to watch Fox News or sort of study what was going on in the conservative media bubble So today's going to be a bit of a shorter episode, and I'm just going to focus on one thing mainly, which is the bar hearing that took place on Tuesday. So I'll get into that in a little bit. But before I start that, I do want to touch briefly on something that I was able to watch last week, which is another interview that President Trump did. But this time it was on Hannity's show as opposed to being sat down for a major interview So it was a lot more informal. It was on the phone. He didn't have to worry about looking bad. But it did seem like he was a lot more comfortable talking to Sean Hannity than he was talking to George Wallace. And after watching the interview, it was very clear to me that for the George Wallace interview, he was kind of just putting on a face you know kind of kind of just try, trying to put up a facade of i care of i'm trying to do what i can for the coronavirus of i've you know i'm trying to be presidential basically but let's be honest he didn't really do a great job of that in the first fox news interview he kind of came off as a bit standoffish i mean not a bit standoffish quite standoffish in fact Whenever George Wallace contradicted him or did anything to sort of question what he was saying, he kind of snapped back and tried to change the subject. But anyway, in Hannity, it wasn't like that at all. Hannity basically just sung his praises the whole time. Um, Hannity did not correct him when he lied or misinterpreted the truth. And in fact, whenever uh, Trump said something that wasn't true even if it was easily verifiable, Hannity would not only agree with him, but sort of enhance this mangling of the facts that Trump is so well known for. And it was pretty obvious that Hannity was pandering to this because whenever he asked the president a question, it would always be sort of from the frame, from the viewpoint of the conservative bubble. So, for example, one of the questions he asked was something to the effect of, these liberal cities with Democratic mayors, what will they do all about the rampant violence? Are they to blame for the violence? You know, things like that. And obviously Trump will answer, well, yeah, they're they're, they're Democratic cities. They're run by horrible Democratic mayors. And nothing is happening. And it's just evolving into chaos, Sean. You know, just, just things like that. And this was in the middle of suggesting that he'd send over 50,000 troops... And I'm directly quoting here who really know what they're doing to clean up the streets. And let's think about that for a second. Just all politics aside. This is the president of the United States who is supposed to be, you know, the leader of freedom and of free speech and things like that. Just basically supposed to be a beacon of democracy and a beacon of the people saying on national television that he's going to send 50,000 active combat troops to an American city to clean up the streets from peaceful protesters. And let's not kid around here, folks. The protests are largely peaceful. In fact, when the uh, federal troops left Portland earlier this week, The night after they left, the protests were pretty much completely peaceful. So that sort of tells me that the protesters were not the problem. The troops were the problem. The troops were there to escalate. The troops were there to do exactly what they're trained to do, which is control a battle zone. And let me actually address that here real quick, because a lot of people I've seen on the right over the last couple of weeks have sort of said that the problem isn't the troops, the problem is the protesters. They're the ones that are aggravating things and destroying property and being the aggressors. So let me address real quickly why that's not the case. So um, what's been happening, for those who've been living under a rock, is that in Portland mainly, but a, a lot of other cities too, but in Portland mainly, this is where it's the worst, Trump sent federal troops in and what's been happening is they've been basically instigating violence against protesters they've been attacking them with tear gas shooting them in the head with rubber bullets which by the way can kill somebody it's not non-lethal ammunition it's less lethal ammunition i've seen plenty of photos and videos of people who got shot in the head with rubber bullets and either died or had serious brain damage but anyway they've been doing that and They've also been taking people off the streets in broad daylight, shoving them in unmarked vans, and driving away and arresting them. But basically, when you look at these troops, at these soldiers, that's really all you know about them, is that they're soldiers. They're wearing camo, they have military gear, and they threaten people with it whenever they do something and people complain. So, what a lot of sleuths on the internet have figured out is... They they call them secret police, but these troops are actually from um, border patrol. And there's a rule that basically says border patrol can be deployed in times of internal conflict, like if a riot gets violent, for example, as long as where it's happening is within, I believe, either 50 or 100 miles of a border. And the loophole they found with this is that with this law or whatever it is, any place that's within 100 miles of an international airport, which is, you know, every major city in the country, can technically be considered a border. So Trump can basically send Border Patrol troops to wherever he wants. And the thing is about these troops... They're not trained like the policemen that we know, and part of the defund the police and reform the police movement is to redo all the training, but the problem is they're not trained like police. They are a military force, plain and simple. They are trained like a military force. So basically, what we see happen is rather than trying to de-escalate the situation rather than trying to actually work with people to de-escalate things, these military units that come from Border Patrol, they are trained to, as Trump put it, dominate the battle space. They are trained as soldiers for an armed conflict. So when they're deployed to this area and they see protesters angry though they may be, and yes, a few of them are violent, and I 100% denounce them, as does the rest of the protest movement. But when they see these protesters, they don't see them as protesters because that's not their job. That's not what they've been trained to do. They have been trained to dominate the battle space. They've been trained as a military force. So when they see protesters, angry though they may be, They don't see them as protesters. They don't see them as peaceful demonstrators. They see them as enemy combatants that they have to disperse. So naturally, when they get into this situation, they're going to do what they're trained to do. They're going to break out the tear gas. They're going to break out the batons and beat up veterans in their 70s who weren't doing anything because that's their job. That's what they've been trained to do. And I'm not saying I... Don't blame them, but simply that it's understandable to see why they do it, even though it's clear from any other angle that it's wrong. And this is the problem I find with people who argue that the violence in Portland is the protesters fault, because it's not. It's the fault of the people that Trump sent in being trained and used as a military occupying force rather than doing any actual policing. They're just doing their jobs. And Trump loves that. Trump, you know, as we all know, wants to be a dictator, wishes he was. And being able to do this, having the power to do this kind of scratches that itch for him. And that's why he enjoyed it so much. But anyway, I sort of got off topic here. So back to the Trump-Hannity interview. On the subject of Portland, he did call it an anarchist city that needs to be, quote, taken care of. And again, that's just pulling right out of the Trump wants to be a dictator playbook. When you have something that doesn't agree with you, you take care of them. In a very stern, harsh way was, I believe, his words or something like that. And the funny thing is, when he talked about this, he suggested that he's actually been polite and tried to get cities to ask for help from the federal government, but that they haven't wanted it. And while he was talking about this, he suggested that he could send troops in without asking, quote, not so politely, and that would work, too. Once again, Trump dictator playbook. I'm not going to go through it with you. I'm just going to move right on. So at, at one point in the interview, Hannity showed a bunch of a montage, shall we say, of Biden gaffes. And I use the word gaff very loosely because that's what they called it. And of there's probably maybe 10, 15 clips that they showed of Joe Biden. And we went through on the last show how much they love making fun of Joe Biden, specifically his senility, quote unquote. And. Of the clips that they showed, maybe 30% of those clips were actual gaffes, you know, like saying the wrong thing kind of kind of deal. But the other 70% of them were either technical difficulties, like they had to end the interview because of a technical error or something like a normal speech tick that anyone might have. Like, I know at least one of the clips that they showed was a Biden saying, and we, uh, uh and then continues talking something like that basically some sort of speech thing that anyone might go through on any given day including myself and after he showed that montage Hannity straight-up asked Trump just like George Wallace did earlier that week if he thought Joe Biden was senile and the interesting thing was Trump did not openly say that he was, you he didn't agree with Hannity, but he did come a lot closer than he did on the interview with George Wallace to saying that he wouldn't 100% commit to it. But he did say something to the effect of Joe Biden has no clue what's going on in the world, basically saying he's so old he's gotten out of touch with reality, and that's rich coming from someone who literally lives in his own reality. But Trump did seem to have a lot more fun talking to Hannity than he did talking to George Wallace. And I'm not really surprised by this. All Hannity does the entire show, and I've watched plenty of his show, I think it's sort of a central staple of the conservative bubble, is watching Hannity's show and sort of taking it at its word, taking it as news. And Hannity seems to deliver... Even the political commentary that he does as if it was news, very matter-of-factly. Although, to be clear, he does like to interject his own opinions into these pieces. For example, one of the things that he likes to do a lot is to brand sort of Trump-style nicknames onto members of the left. For example, he likes to call Bernie Sanders Bolshevik Bernie, and he likes to call... Beto O'Rourke, take your guns, Beto, because apparently he's going to become uh, Joe Biden's new gun czar, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to take away everybody's guns, and then there's going to be absolute chaos in the streets. Be afraid! But that's sort of Fox News in a nutshell for you. Remember they used to have that slogan, fair and balanced, back in the early 2000s, and of course they've completely disregarded that now and sort of embraced being the mouthpiece of the right, but... They, I think they should have a new slogan. Just be afraid of everything. They're coming to take your guns. There's protesters in Portland that are destroying the city. And soon it's going to erupt into your home. And only we can save you. Be afraid of everything. That's Fox News in a nutshell. And actually, that's sort of a common theme that I found on the right, on the conservative media bubble in general, is X is coming for you. Whether it's Joe Biden, whether it's AOC coming for your health care, whether it's Beto Works coming for your guns, there is always a threat right out on the horizon from somebody on the left or from the left itself. And the only way to save yourself is by being informed by Fox News and the conservative media bubble. But anyway, I just wanted to get into that Trump-Hannity interview real quick. And sort of just give a general overview of what I've learned in the last week Of what little watching I've been able to do So in any case Let's go ahead and move on to the main topic of the day Which is The hearing That Attorney General Barr attended on Tuesday the 25th So let's get into that So anyone who knows me well Knows that I am not a fan Of Attorney General Bill Barr Um, He basically just does whatever Trump tells him to do, whatever he thinks is going to make Trump look good, whatever he thinks Trump wants him to do. So in this case, the hearing centered a lot around his response to Portland and Lafayette Square, where it's said that he was the one who gave the order to unleash violence and tear gas onto the protesters to clear out Lafayette Square in Washington so that Trump could walk across the street and have a photo op at a church. And there were a lot of questions based around that. And there were some questions asked also based on what was happening in Portland and what he thought was the right thing to do there. So the interesting thing is, and I'll start with this, that Democrats and Republicans you might as well have thought that they were living in two completely different universes because all the Democrats did was ask him these questions and then as soon as he started to respond or try and... Basically, he'd try and make excuses for what he was talking about for the stuff that's going on and why he thought the way he did. And as soon as he tried to sort of go down that path... The Democrats would stop him immediately and just say, excuse me, sir, I'm reclaiming my time. And that that sort of became a meme. (laughs) So if anyone doesn't know what that's from, like around the internet, everyone would say, oh, I'm reclaiming my time from stupid people. So that's where reclaiming time came from. Like whenever the Democrats saw that he was basically trying to BS them, they would say, sir, I'm reclaiming my time. Please be quiet while I continue. (laughs) So I'm not sure what to think of that because, you know, as much as I agree with the Democrats line of questioning, you do have to give the guy a chance to respond. This is a hearing after all. And that's that's one thing that um, Republicans in the hearing kept harping on over and over. This is a hearing, isn't it? We're supposed to hear from you. And in that very specific respect, I do sort of agree with them like they should have given him the chance to finish his thoughts. Before going on, but actually a lot of those Reclaiming my time comments came when they'd ask him like Yes, or no like a simple yes or no question and then he'd start to go off on a different tangent And they'd they'd stop him. they'd be like excuse me, sir. I'm, I'm reclaiming my time You're taking up the time that I'm allotted in this hearing because they only gave each member. I believe five minutes So what they'd say is I'm reclaiming my time. Please be quiet Or if they didn't answer, if Barr didn't answer the question, they'd say, "I'm reclaiming my time. Please answer the question, yes or no." So there was it went a little bit both ways in that regard. But anyway, my uh, personal favorite was Jim Jordan. Whenever he would get a chance to talk, he would ask only what I can only describe as laughably leading questions, and what I mean by that is the fact that he would frame a question that he would ask Attorney General Barr in such a way that it was very, very, very clear exactly what he wanted the answer to that question to be. So, for example, I don't know if this was the exact wording, but it was something like this. He'd, He'd say something to the effect of, if they were talking about Portland. So, given that these cities, these big cities are run by Democratic mayors and there's nonstop violence going on in these cities and the only way to help it would be to send in federal troops, what do you think of the response of the president to send in federal troops and do you think the violence is the fault of the Democrats? And when you frame it like that, as a conservative, as Barr is, it's pretty easy to just answer, oh, well, yeah, it's the Democrats' fault and... The cities are violent and we need to send in the troops in order to keep the peace. And so like questions like this were quite common from the conservatives on the panel. And another thing that you saw a lot from them, which we also saw during the uh, investigation of Trump's impeachment, was they'd start their line of questioning with something to the effect of, I just want to say, first of all, that you're so brave for being here and taking all this abuse that the Democrats have thrown at you and I salute you, sir, or something like that. Just sort of stoking his ego and making him feel a little bit more empowered, for lack of a better term. So anyway, let's just keep going on with the highlights of this hearing. So at one point, Representative Jeffries just kind of went down a laundry list of grievances that most people have had from Trump's handling of COVID-19. And when I say most people, I do mean most people. I think it's something to the effect of around 70% of the country disapproves with the way that President Trump has handled the coronavirus. But in any case, he just went down this list of like, you know, he said it'd be a miracle and it would go away. And that wearing masks wasn't required. And then he tried to walk that back and say, masks are great. But at the same time, he tried to say, oh, you don't have to wear a mask. We just recommend it. But Anthony Fauci said back in uh, February, you didn't have to wear a mask. And that's sort of the whole thing. Like, and I said it in last week's podcast, too. Like, he changed his mind. The entire health community changed their mind on covid because we saw how bad it got in China and realized it was only a matter of time before it came to us. But if you watch Fox News, and I did for some time after this hearing was over and also during it, you wouldn't think that. You'd think it was just a super rosy outlook from the CDC and everybody, and Fauci and everybody else in the healthcare field just saying, oh, COVID's not a big deal. It's not going to have, we're not going to worry about it. We're just going to... But that's not the truth. The truth is... The CDC and similar healthcare folks were warning the administration as early as like mid-January that COVID-19 was a serious threat and measures had to be immediately taken to prevent people from dying from it in the United States. And there were multiple studies that came out a few months later after the pandemic was already here that basically said if we had implemented social distancing and wearing of masks just two weeks earlier than we did, if we'd done it in like late February, early March, something like 80% of the deaths that we'd had, maybe even more, could have been prevented. Now, just think about that for a second. If we had been willing to admit the truth that COVID-19 was dangerous, and as a country, as a nation have a leader who was willing to say hard truths, had a leader who was willing to say, we're going to have to social distance, we're going to have to shut down, we're going to have to wear masks for the time being. If we'd had a leader who had said that, I think something around 156,000 people have died from COVID-19 in the U.S. so far. If, we've, if we'd if we had that, about one hundred and twenty to 130,000 of those people would still be alive today and it's it's sickening really when you think about it just the way that this president has handled this pandemic and i say that completely from a non-partisan non-progressive viewpoint like anyone any outside source who looks at the way we've handled this virus in this country is absolutely blown away like how could the world's richest most advanced, apparently most socially civil nation get it completely wrong? And the answer is the leadership. We had a president who denied it. We had a president who downplayed it. We had a president who said it was going to disappear like a miracle. But guess what? It didn't. And now 156,000 people are dead. And I'm wholly convinced that at least 80% of those deaths are Trump's fault. And this is why we need to vote him out in November. Because what if an even greater threat to our democracy or to our health or to our country comes along? Is he going to downplay it? Or is he going to do the opposite and overreact? I mean, this is coming from the guy who basically said, why don't we just nuke hurricanes to try and make them not hit our coast? I mean, it's just mind-boggling how completely out of touch with reality he is. But I digress. So let's get back to the bar hearing. So anyway, when Jeffries went down this list, he would, each time he made a point, ask Attorney General Barr, Did you know about this? What did you think about this? And Barr's answer every time was, I don't remember the context, or that's not what I saw, or that's not what I heard, or I simply don't recall. And that is one of my absolute favorite things to hear from politicians, left or right. Because if you just say the phrase, I simply can't recall, it's a polite way of, obviously a polite way of saying I don't remember, but if you say I don't remember, It sounds a little fishy. It sounds like maybe you do remember and you're just choosing not to. But if you say, I cannot recall, it's a little more formal. It's a little less contextual. Like, you can say, oh, I I don't recall hearing that. And it sounds a little more genuine. sounds less forceful, you know? And Barr, whenever they asked him about something that he clearly should have had knowledge about like the protesters in Lafayette Square, like sending federal troops to Portland, he would always say, I simply don't recall that conversation. And you can't really do anything against that. And politicians know that. So anyway, that was pretty much Barr's cop-out to any question that the Democrats asked him that he didn't want to answer or thought that answering honestly would damage his character or credibility. So anyway... I think it was right after Jeffries Biggs, a Republican, came out and again said, I can't believe you have to deal with what you're dealing with. I'm so sorry. I salute you for your bravery, sir, that kind of thing. And then he went on about sending the federal troops into Portland. And he lambasted the Democratic response to it and gave the analogy of it's like sending the fire department to put out a fire and then having them being blamed for the fire which is you know a nice little sound bite that he can put in his highlight reel for when he tries to get reelected but I do have a response to that so there's a, there's a simple answer to why the protests in Portland became so violent and I already went through it earlier in the podcast which is that the federal troops are the ones that are trained for violence and so when they're confronted with anything violent or not their response is going to be violent and so my response to that is that the protests were not violent before the federal forces arrived at least not in the way they are now and those forces were the ones that escalated things by shooting people in the head with rubber bullets and beating people half to death with batons and pulling random people off the streets are there violent people in the protests sure But they're certainly not the norm. But anyway, the big revelation that came out of the bar hearing was that he straight up announced that they were doing an investigation into the unmasking of Michael Flynn. So basically taking Trump's wild deep state conspiracy theory that Obama and Biden were spying on his campaign and making it an official Justice Department investigation. And I can't overstate to you guys how impactful this could be on the way that law and order, as Trump loves to parade around, works in the United States. Because this is a personal investigation for the president of the United States, who happens to be Donald Trump, being done by the attorney general of the United States, who, by the way, doesn't work for the president. And Trump doesn't seem to understand this, and apparently neither does the Attorney General himself. So because the Attorney General is basically acting as a lackey for Trump, this could open up all sorts of unfortunate doors to corrupt and unfounded investigations, including this one. I mean, we sort of got a preview of it when the Republicans spent millions of dollars investigating Benghazi and had something like, what, 37 different investigations or something like that, and none of them turned up any evidence whatsoever that Hillary or Obama was responsible for anything. But like I said, that was just the preview. Now we actually have an attorney general who's willing to do this dirt digging for the president, and you can imagine how far he could take it if he wanted to. And if he's ever asked about these things in a deposition or a hearing of any kind, he doesn't have to say anything. He can deny it. He can just say, I simply cannot recall the conversation. And that'll be the end of that. So, like I said, just huge implications for what the president can do and how much corrupt power he can put in the hands of the attorney general To work for him rather than the people. But anyway, Barr also touched on clearing out Lafayette Square for the photo op. And his excuse for what happened was that the two events didn't correlate. Like that, basically, Trump decided to get that photo op completely separately from clearing out the square. Like he's, he just said we wanted to move the perimeter back to protect this church and the street and the historic buildings. Um, well, a it's too late for that. Someone already burned down the one thing that was there. And number two, and more importantly, why were the two events so closely linked then? Why is it that the photo op that Trump clearly had to clear out the protesters in order to get, right after clearing out the protesters? Why did the photo op happen immediately after the square was cleared? Just some food for thought for everyone listening today. But I mean, if you're listening to me, I'm sure you probably already agree with me politically. So (laughs) anyway, one of the things I did notice about what Barr said during the deposition is that He loves to blame Obama for everything, for all the problems that we have in the world. The pandemic response, the huge numbers of dead people we have from COVID-19, that's Obama's fault. And uh, let me stop you right there, Mr. Attorney General, because it's common knowledge that Obama and his cabinet in 2016, I should say 2017, left behind... A pandemic handbook, a pandemic playbook, if you will, basically outlining the steps that the federal government would need to take were a pandemic to reach our shores. And what did Trump do with that information? Eh, He threw it away. He just said, yeah, we don't need that. And lo and behold, not too long after, we now have a pandemic and we have no playbook anymore. So the states are all kind of just running around willy nilly doing their own lockdowns and Trump loves it because if the states get outbreaks and the governors are the ones putting the policies in place, you can't blame Trump for the federal government's response. They're not the ones that responded. It was the state governments. So that gives him free reign in his mind anyway, to blame the democratic governors for, All the bad things that happened because of COVID-19. And he has done that. But the problem with that approach is in times of crisis, people tend to look to their leaders for hope. They look to their leaders for guidance. And Trump is the leader of the United States right now. And rather than provide guidance and positivity and a plan or even a semblance of a plan... He chose to deny it. He chose to downplay it. He chose to pander to his base rather than to base humanity. And as a result, his disapproval rating is higher than it's ever been. And it's looking very much like he'll lose the election in November. And by the way, I still don't fully believe he'll lose the election in November. We And we should also prepare for the inevitable outcome that... He loses the election and refuses to give up office. So, anyway, there's a couple more points that I want to make about Barr and the hearing before I get to the weirdest thing that I saw this week. So, first, at one point, Representative Cicilline, to her credit, asked one of the best questions that I heard anyone ask the whole day. And that is, she straight up asked him, Yes or no, is it ever appropriate to accept foreign interference in an election? and Barr's answer first like he sort of didn't really think about the answer he sort of just let it come out he said well it depends on what kind of assistance and everyone in the room just kind of looked at him like what? and then she repeated the question is it yes or no is it ever appropriate to accept foreign interference and then it seemed like the wheels finally started turning in his head and he finally said no so it's sort of interesting that he said that because, as we know, Trump facilitated foreign interference with the whole Ukraine scandal that got him impeached. So that just goes yet again to show that Barr is basically saying whatever he thinks is going to take Trump out of the equation. He's saying whatever he can to save Trump and save himself, even when the evidence overwhelmingly points to the contrary and this is a very common thing that we see in the conservative media bubble particularly in the trump era it's trump's sort of infamous saying that what you're seeing and what you're hearing isn't what's happening basically saying oh you see all these facts that people are throwing in your face they're wrong these facts are wrong we have the right facts we are telling you the truth they are liars trying to manipulate the system into getting the democrats into a socialist takeover and it just kind of spirals out of control from there so the second thing i wanted to bring up about the hearing is when he was talking about the fact that people are resisting the law enforcement and like the wall of moms and how this sort of displays the fact that the mob is violent and needs to be violently put down and his pretty much exact saying was, when people resist law enforcement, they're not peaceful. And on the surface, yeah, I guess he has a point. If you resist arrest, you are clearly not being peaceful. I should say, if you resist a rightful arrest, you're clearly not being peaceful, and they have the right to use a certain amount of force to make you compliant. But the problem is, this is exactly what these protests are about. The military is justifying these uses of force way too often and way too easily and disproportionately on the minority community. So these protesters aren't resisting law enforcement, as Barr put it in the hearing, so much as they're protesting the fact that law enforcement has become militaristic. They've become an occupying force, in essence. I mean, we've all seen the videos of what happens when the cops, either post-protest or during the middle of it, start to like patrol the streets. I've seen that one video where the lady is literally standing in her porch watching the cops go by, and it's, it basically looks like you know um, an actual military force, like an army just walking down the street. You know, 10, 20 people, all with bulletproof vests and helmets and big assault rifles. And one. she kind of, it's just, she's just standing there in the doorway, watching them go by, you know, recording with her phone. And you hear someone just say, Get back in the house, get back, get back. And then you hear someone else say, Light them up. And as soon as they say that, a bunch of them turn their guns towards her and shoot at her with rubber bullets, but still shooting at her. Now, let me say that again. A woman on her own porch, just watching the cops go by, being totally peaceful. They say, light her up. And they just fire all these rubber bullets at her. Now, curfew or no, this is just wrong. This should not be happening in the United States. This is supposed to be a country of freedom. This is supposed to be a country where you can sit on your outside front porch without having to worry about getting shot. And if you're black, if you're Hispanic, the chances of that happening go up almost exponentially. And this is the problem. When law enforcement is as militarized as they are, They see anything unusual, like protests, for example, as resistance, as a threat. And the only way they know how to counter that threat, thanks to the very minimal training that they receive, is through force, is through violence, is in a militaristic fashion. They're trained as a military force, and that's all they know how to do. So when they see this resistance, the only thing they know how to do is to attack them. And yes, they use less-than-lethal methods, which is, I guess, better than actually shooting them. But we've seen what these less-than-lethal things can do. People have died from taking rubber bullets to the face. And we've seen aftermath photos of people with gigantic holes full of blood in their foreheads because they got hit by a rubber bullet. So this is the problem. Barr just doesn't get it, for lack of a better term. And throughout this whole process, and I'll end on this, he kept referring to the protesters as rioters rather than saying what they actually were, which was protesters. Like, there's a big difference between a protest and a riot. A riot is when the mob instigates the violence, when they're the ones doing all the bad things, when they're the ones attacking people on the streets, when they're the ones killing cops. And we've seen barely any of that. And yeah, there are a few isolated examples that Fox News loves to parade over people's heads. But other than that, this has been a very peaceful movement. And Black Lives Matter has worked very hard to keep it that way. But the question is, since Barr keeps referring to them as rioters rather than protesters, is he using this term to, for lack of a better term, cover his own ass? Is he trying to basically be able to say, well, I said they were rioters in the past, and that's what I believed, so that if he ever gets pulled into something like this again, he'll have some sort of plausible deniability? Or is he trying to redefine the whole narrative around the protests themselves? Because as I said in the last episode, say something loud enough and often enough, and people start to believe it. Is he trying to be part of that alternate narrative being pushed by the conservative media bubble that these protesters aren't protesters, but they're rioters? And my answer to both of those questions is yes. He's trying to give himself deniability for the future, and he's trying to advance this now proven false narrative that the protests are not protests. They're actually riots, and they need to be put down. So anyway, that was my take on the bar hearings. So let's move right along to the weirdest thing that I saw this week. So this week's award goes to Dr. Stella Emanuel. And this is one of the rare instances where a story actually burst through the conservative media bubble, so to speak, and became mainstream because it's just so weird and so completely out there That you'd never think that it was actually true, but apparently it is. So the story started with Donald Trump Jr. being banned from Twitter for a little bit of time. And people kind of found that interesting. They're like, huh, what did he do? Why was he banned from Twitter? Well, it turns out he was banned from Twitter because he promoted misinformation or disinformation, which is against Twitter's policies. So the reason he got banned from Twitter was because he retweeted some comments by Dr. Emanuel, basically saying that COVID had a cure in hydroxychloroquine, and that hydroxychloroquine can, quote, stop COVID in its tracks in 30 days. And so anyone who's been following any sort of health news knows that not only is hydroxychloroquine completely ineffective, against COVID-19, it might actually make things worse for a lot of people. But looking at her other work, shall we call it, things get interesting. And by interesting, I mean hilariously out there. So she's written a bunch of articles in the medical field, and one of them posits the theory that real-life ailments, such as fibroid tumors and cysts, stem from the demonic sperm from demon dream sex that's right folks this medical doctor this licensed doctor believes that a lot of problems like tumors and cancer are caused by demons coming into your bedroom while you sleep and having sex with you and their sperm goes into your body and causes these cysts and tumors. I What? <laughs> I mean, when I saw this, I couldn't believe it was real. Like I seriously thought it was a joke. But one of the sources that I saw it from was the not the onion subreddit, and one of their main rules is that whatever story you post up there has to be real. And so I did my homework, I checked it out, and it is real, folks. It is 100% verified. This actual licensed doctor truly believes that cancer is caused by demons coming into your bedroom at night, having sex with you while you sleep, and releasing their demonic sperm, which travels through your body, and gives you tumors that's it folks we have all the answers now my mom battled brain cancer for three and a half years turns out it wasn't the cancer it was the demon sperm i mean this is i don't know what else i can say about it it's just absolutely bonkers and it's the weirdest thing i saw this week All right, so I want to thank you all for joining me today for this slightly abridged episode of the Undercover Bubble, and I'm going to be updating the Fox News bingo board this week with Demon Sperm, because there's really no better place that I could think of putting it than in the Fox News bingo, where they did talk about it, let's be clear, and interestingly, they thought it was just as crazy as I think it was, but it's going on the board, folks, so I hope you enjoy it. If you like the podcast, don't be afraid to follow and subscribe. And please follow my Twitter, my Instagram, and my Facebook page. Thank you all for listening, folks. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you next week. Have a good one.